Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. This is normally the time in the service where I ask you to open your Bibles and to turn to the passage or the text that we're studying for the day, uh, but I actually want to take the next 20 of our 40 minutes here to uh, inform you about some ministry items. Um, instead of thinking that uh, this 20 minutes is kind of separate from the time in the sermon, I actually want for you to think that this is a time that is an extended introduction to the sermon, uh, and I think you'll see as that pulls together, these two fit perfectly together, just how the Lord has timed uh, with the passage that we're in a little bit later is, uh, is an amazing thing. So since this is kind of introductory, I want to actually bring the big thought or the big idea of our sermon today right up front here, and uh, it is this, people in your life will make decisions that affect your life and you will need to determine how you proceed with your life. Uh, People in your life will make decisions that affect your life, and you will need to determine how you proceed with your life. That's something every one of us can relate to, and we'll be going there uh, both in this time as well as uh, in Matthew 26. But So I'm going to take these 20 minutes, three things kind of covering over here in this time. The first one of those is I want to take some time and go over our history. It's just always really good to remember where God has brought this place. It's easy to forget, and I love the story, and it's just really important. Secondly, I want to form you on some strategic ministry planning that we have in place and of what, with what's going on. And then third, I want to inform you on some uh, strategic ministry decision that's taken place here recently, and we'll get to that. So first, a little history reminder of where God has brought this church Uh, This church actually began to come together in early 2007 when Larry and Denise Woods began having a conversation with Harvest Bible Chapel Chicago. In fact, Larry is right over here in the corner, one of our elders, and uh, way back in 2007, uh, they began having a conversation. Uh, After that conversation, over the next six months, um, a, a core team began to form together of about 25 people who began praying and just meeting together and asking the Lord, Lord, might a a church in this kind of uh, fashion that we're interested in be brought on the west side of Indianapolis? Uh, Later that year, in September of 2007, Karen and I accepted the opportunity for me to be the pastor, uh, the senior pastor here, and Nick and Jill, then in November, accepted the opportunity for uh, Nick to be the worship pastor here. Now, I think a little while ago, there might even been in the student ministries, like a, 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 a trivia question that was brought up, who is the first hired pastor here? And actually, that's debatable, because while I was kind of named, Nick was the first one on the payroll. <laughs> you decide. You decide. But uh, so we had a couple dozen people, a core team, uh, two pastors, and prayers being lifted up for us to launch in early 2008. By January 2008, we had some 90 people that were formed together 
as a launch team. And in fact, uh, if you were on that launch team prior to us launching, would you stand up? Do we have any of you here? If you'd stand up, don't be shy in that. Um, thank you. So most of them are first and second service. That's interesting. <laughs> and uh, we're just grateful for them. And I think in it, here's my statement for them. One of the unique things and blessings that they have is this, oh my, what God has done. Never, I think, in our wildest dreams would we imagine what the Lord has done. So March 9th was set, uh, 2008, as our launch Sunday. Uh, we invited people. Uh, however, we kind of had the guideline that you're not allowed to invite well-wishers. Well-wishers were people who were kind of, you know, interested. They were praying for you. They might be family members, friends, but they weren't going to come to the church. So we said, wait six weeks. Let us get started. Kind of see who comes because a lot of times churches pad the numbers. That's just annoying. And, and they would, we didn't want to do that. And we just wanted to see who was there. And so we pulled together. And then on Sunday, March 9th, 2008, we had our first public worship service in the Regal Shiloh Crossing Theater. And in fact, if you were there in our first service, would, as, long, as well as the launch team, would you stand up? And again, it's not to applaud them so much. It's just, uh, am I right? Oh my, what God has done. By the way, dude, you were a lot smaller. <laughs> what the Lord has done over the time. So we had uh, about 217 people show up that Sunday. And for the following six years in that theater, it was just nothing other than, wow, look at what the Lord's doing. From our earliest days, uh, we were an autonomous, which means our own uh, self-financed, self-governed local church. But we were the 25th uh, church plant of Harvest Bible Chapel, Chicago, uh, and yet that relationship was structured strategically. It was structured from the very beginning that we were a relationship of mutual influence, not one of ministry ownership. We were never a denominational kind of a thing. It was local churches, autonomous on their own, planting and uh, going and uh, spreading out. Well, jump ahead six years after we launched. In fact, uh, one month shy of our six-year anniversary, and on Sunday, February 2nd, 2014, we moved into this facility on 23 acres. And I don't know if those of you who, in fact, if you were there, this is the last time, if you were there on that Sunday, would you stand for Sunday that we had here in this facility? Would you stand? And uh, Stay standing. Here's one of the cool things and the reason I'm doing this is can you see just kind of how the multiplying going on and what's taking place, you can go ahead and sit down. And by the way, all of you are sitting, I want to tell you, you are an answer to prayer. And what God has done with growing, uh, never, never in our minds did we think this was happening. This was never our objective. It just, we just wanted to serve the Lord. We just wanted to see him show up in our lives with that. Um, and this property and this facility is just a living testimony of God at work in the people of this church through their sacrifices, through their service, and through God's kind hand. And all the glory goes to him for it. Every piece of it. So basically the story is this. From one couple, to a couple dozen people, to a couple pastors, to a launch team, to an actual church service open to the community in a theater, the two services in a theater, to a brand new facility on 23 acres, to an amazing staff, 
to an addition of another eight acres just this fall, providing us uh, road frontage under Rockville Road that we're in the process of moving towards and getting developed as some time goes along and handle all that. And by the way, purchasing that last fall was before anyone knew, including us, and a number of people knowing before the Great Wall of China was going up right out here in front of us at, at the at-home superstore. And God, I will just say, God has been in the details, even providing for us an avenue uh, for visibility for the long term of the church. But now we have three services with about some 1,200 people attending here every Sunday. Um, and I pray it's the same story as 11 years ago coming to see the Lord, to meet together, to be together with the Lord, for the Lord to show up, that we would grow and see him increasingly so. May that story never change. The numbers have changed. The services taking place are more. Uh, the facilities have changed. Um, there's more complexities in it all. But our passion is the same. We want to be a local church passionately pursuing after worshiping Christ and walking with Christ and working for Christ. We want to be increasingly a people who know and minister and serve the Lord for the glory of the Lord. And a healthy church is not defined by their numbers or by their programs or by their name. They're defined by who they pursue the name that they pursue, and may it always be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's some history. Moving into kind of where we're at and eyes on the future, some strategic planning that's in process. In light of what God's done over the last 11 years, it includes a ministry reality of having to reorganize, implement structure changes again and again and again and again and again. Uh, it may seem as though, kind of, if you will, the ministry duck is floating calmly at times, maybe even if it's a bit aimless at times. You look under the water, and I can tell you there's a lot of craziness that's been going on. Tim Keller wrote an article titled Leadership and Church Size Dynamics, where he discusses the functional dynamics of local churches by their size. He has four sizes, small, medium, large, and very large and, and while most ministries and most ministry leaders uh, hope to experience movement from one size dynamic uh, to the other in their lifetime, this church has experienced all four in the last 11 years. And to say that it's been a handful, understatement of my life. Yet the Christian life is about growing and changing. And in fact, that's a characteristic of who we should be Ministry dynamics change, and so should we as we change in mature in the Lord. And in light of that, of where we're at today with three services and some 1,200 people and another eight acres, and including pastors who are finishing their master's programs and doctoral programs, we actually are going to have pastors who are here full time. It's awesome. Uh, we're again in the midst of some strategic planning. And so I'm just going to tell you, there's five key areas we're working on right now and we began a little while ago. First one was strategic, strategic flock planning. We're wrapping that up as elders uh, now. Then uh, st strategic staff planning. Uh, we're just in the midst of uh, re-looking at all that. Strategic linest... <laughs> Sorry, this is my third time, so bear with me here. Strategic leadership planning is July and August. 
uh, as we're coming up to that, and we'll have the pastors and the elders involved. We're going to be in strategic financial planning as we look ahead into the future and just how do we want to see ourselves financially structured. That'll be August through October. And then strategic ministry planning in uh, September through December. And that's so much involved with that on just property and where we're headed and how it looks, succession planning, a whole kinds, number of things. And we want to enter 2020 in the coming decade with with increased strategic clarity I think we can genuinely say as a result of the history and so forth, we know who we are. Uh, we know we're, what we are about, and, and those don't change. But as we're soon going to see in our upcoming study through the book of Acts, we'll be starting that in August, taking that through the beginning of December, ministry has a way of developing. Uh, it ebbs and it flows in seasons, and a new decade is ahead of us, and we want to enter it strategically. So that's some history, that's some strategic planning in place, and then a strategic ministry decision. Last month, while our strategic ministry planning process was underway, we came upon the need to make a strategic ministry decision. And the statement on the screen uh, related to our text so relates to what the decision has to do with. And that's people in your life will make decisions that affect your life and you will need to determine how you proceed with your life. And well, that happened. That happened. And I'm just simply going to state it. As a result of recently reported activities about James McDonald, the former senior pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, Chicago, the elders and pastors here have unanimously agreed that we pursue the changing of our name and our church logo. Just as you ponder that, process that, it was interesting when I was putting some pictures together for today. I did not remember that our first Sunday here in this new facility, we had no name on our building. I forgot. And I remember I wasn't happy about it. <laughs> May I say it's a bit ironic? May I say it's even a bit prophetic? So why the unanimous decision by the elders and pastors to change the name and the logo of this church? Because some really bad decisions have been made outside of us that as a result require us to determine our course of action. And while autonomous and independent from Harvest Bible Chapel Chicago, and even while over these last three plus years we've been making steps of separation from them, The reality is that some of the shrapnel from James's James's sinful choices are dropping on us and another 150 harvest churches. And you may be familiar with the information that I'm talking about, you may not be, but I'll just say this. Uh, Over the last nine months, it has been reported uh, of some very disturbing life and leadership sin issues with James and Harvest Chicago. I communicated to you earlier this year that James was rightly dismissed by the elders of Harvest Chicago. And frankly, it was our hope that that decision, that action, would put an end to the public conversation and the situation, but it hasn't. Last month, additional information um, that I'm just going to say is just plain dark and disturbing was brought to life about James's activities and it has become the final straw for us as elders and pastors. 
And without going in the ugly details of it, I will simply say, the information that's been reported becomes the closest thing that I can personally equate to a King Saul-like situation. Last year we were studying about King Saul. It's a sad story of God using a leader in some quite amazing ministry ways. I mean, just like the Lord did with King Saul at the beginning of his reign, who then later, you find that he's being engaged in some very disturbing activities. And unfortunately, James's actions have tarnished the name that we bear as a church. It has become a ministry distraction, and it has become a ministry distraction that we no longer believe is going to disappear anytime soon. This is the last step of separation for us. Friends, we're grateful for our past. And we're grateful for so many of our ministry friendships. But as Pastor Tim Hartness from Harvest Peoria mentioned just uh, recently uh, when he was communicating the same decision to his church family, he noted from Ephesians 5, the text that hap he happened to schedule for that Sunday, that we are to be careful with who we align and partner ourselves with. We are to align ourselves with those who are going after life like us and who Ephesians 5 take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So as a result, we believe it is inappropriate and important for us to take a stand by changing our name. The decision, it is an unbudgeted, expensive decision. It is also a time-consuming, expansive decision. We have sign changes and document changes, website changes, email address changes, Twitter changes. <laughs> but we believe, even though it's expensive and expansive, we believe it's the right decision. And it's a decision that's about our future, not about our past. I want for you to know that we're not alone in this decision. In fact, within just a few hundred mile radius of us, Harvest Davenport, Granger, Fort Wayne, Bloomington have already all changed their names. Harvest Peoria and Harvest Indy North are presently in the process of selecting and implementing a name change as are we. Do we have a new church name and logo to introduce? No. Do we have a name selection process? We are just putting that together now. When do you think Pastor Doug will have a new name and logo? Well, there's no specific deadline at this point. However, sooner is better. And my expectation is that we will enter 2020 with a new name, a new logo, and a renewed, clarified ministry vision for the coming years. And I am excited about that. And without having humanly planned this to be, we happen to be in a text today where Jesus is impacted by a whole host of really bad decisions being made all around him. Wow, the irony of that and how God times this word. People in your life will make decisions that affect your life and you will need to determine how you proceed with your life. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, 
and let's kind of continue. Let's not set aside what I just talked about as something different. That's the long introduction into the text. And let's go to God's word and let's get hope and help from it, okay? And let me pray as we transition into that. Lord, um, life is hard. Life is confusing at times. Life is heavy. Life brings tears, hurts. We need your help. The only name that really matters is your name. So I ask, would you refresh us in your word with your name? Would you encourage us? Would you direct us with your word? Lord Jesus, you know what it is to experience really bad decisions being made all around you. We're going to see that in the text today. And by the way, that includes even our bad decisions. But in your grace and in your patience, you proceed ahead to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I ask, would you help us to keep our eyes on you? In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, let's take the next 20 and let's uh, drink it in. Let's go verse by verse. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47, the gospel betrayals. While he, Jesus, was still speaking. Uh, Let me just bring the context. Look down at verse 46 right before it. Uh, Last Sunday we were in Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus is praying with the Father those three times, going back to the disciples. Hey, why are you guys falling asleep? And we were were able to, from a distance, uh, observe this gospel cup, this unique cup that the Lord talks about that he is going to bear before the Father. And, And that cup is the full wrath and the fury of God's wrath on sin is going to soon be poured out on Christ on the cross. It is bringing the fury and the wrath of God for sin, and for the first time in all of eternity, uh, the, the, the Son is separated from the Father for a season, and He is anguishing over that, and He knows that is about to come, and, and we saw that, and, and yet even in watching that, it's kind of like seeing that life is taken there to that place, wills met there in that place, strength was gained there in that place, and stakes were driven there in that place. And, and so uh, then he finishes and rise, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. And with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Let's stop there. Let me explain a few things here with this. It talks about great crowds. Uh, Matthew used this as our translation in English is kind of having to do with that. Uh, um, it sounds like it's just randomly people from the community. As we've been going through this, we're in Passover season. So in some ways, there's maybe a little bit of feel like, is that what's happening? Random people are coming. Well, that's not what's happening because the text tells us they're coming from the chief priests and, and the Sanhedrin or the elders of the people. 
So this is, this is a group of individuals that really are comprised of, let's call them the temple police. I think that's probably the best idea way to, to see this. This is the temple grounds police. But one of the really helpful things that in the word that Matthew uses here is it gives us insight and understanding that the, sometimes in the movies we see maybe like 12 guys coming to get Jesus. Well, that really wasn't the case here. Uh, this, the word that he uses carries this idea of there's a lot more people than that. Like, like, I don't know how many, but more than that. <laughs> and so it was a crowd that's coming. And by the way, do you see what they're all uh, uh, girded up with? That they all have, they got swords and clubs in their hands. That tells you a lot of what they're thinking about is might go down when they come upon Christ. They, they think that there might be some battle here on what's going on. And uh, we'll see what happens with that. By the way, how sad is this that the chief priests and the elders of the people are sending them? Like, what's going on with the chief priests and the elders? They're completely missing the Messiah. Uh, Know this, that from the line all the way back going to Aaron in the Old Testament, the, the chief priests are saying, these should be this sense where there should be an idea of anybody who is welcoming and seeing and grabbing a hold of who the Messiah is, it should be them. What happened to them over time that got so far off that they actually are becoming enemies of the Savior versus ones who are proclaiming the Savior. They're way off. Verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, and you seize him. Uh, What this is, is is, is a friendly kiss on the cheek kind of a thing. It was common in that day. Um, it, It was the type of thing where uh, why would he do this? I mean, Jesus for the last week has been in the temple grounds. Uh, I'm telling you, even all these people, the temple, they knew who Jesus was. They had to have known. I mean, that's part of, this is where their job in this. And yet, why do they have to know? I I think it's just good to understand context of it. The, The Gethsemane is kind of outside of Jerusalem. There's a little valley. It comes up on the outside. It's over here, if you will. And Gethsemane is over here. And and there's some kind of low trees with branches. If you've been there, you've been in the area. And usually in the movies, it's a full moon at night. Why is it a full moon? Well, because if it wasn't a full moon, you wouldn't be able to see what's going on there. And so uh, with that, and yet it could have been a cloudy night, it could have been, but I'm just telling you, and they don't have lights from Jerusalem that are casting off, because as I remember, they didn't have electricity back in that day. And so Gethsemane is a dark place, and this is happening uh, somewhere in the middle of the nighttime, like this is like midnight, so there's no lights going on, and so they know, even though if they bring torches and things like that, uh, as they come, uh, Judas is helping them to understand, we're going to come upon like 11 people here here, and even though they could have probably picked out who Jesus was, he's like, I'm just going to make sure that we get the right guy, and so he's leading them to them in verse 49, and he came to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him, and this is another one of these moments where you sit and you go, Judas, what happened? How did you get to this point? And in this, I think we, we, we know Judas so well that we forget about the fact that Judas, for the last three years, has been doing ministry with the other 11 disciples and Jesus. I mean, if we didn't know this, 
we would think Judas was right on because one of the disciples, I mean, he was going out in twos and doing ministry with them and coming back and declaring what God has done. He's been a part of everything that's been taking place in it all. And you come to this point and you look at it and you go, my goodness, he's been one of the disciples that the Lord has been using in some amazing ways. He's been seeing miracles. He's probably even participated in some. I, I don't fully know in it all. But we come to this point and we find him here where he is betraying Christ, giving him up, and you just got to go, what got you to this place? And what's so interesting about Scripture is, is it doesn't tell us. And I think there's honestly, as a result of that, there's something in us that, friends, uh, we have to watch the course of our lives. We have to be very careful because generally people do not jump off the spiritual cliff in a moment. Generally people are step by step movement by movement, until you get to a point in time where you go, uh, Lord willing, when someone repents, uh, get to a point and it's like, how did I get to think that that was okay? But people make choices, and their choices bear upon our lives. Jesus responds, verse 50, Jesus said to him, to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. I want to pause here again just for a little bit. I know I don't have much time, but I want to pause just for a little bit because two things. One, I, if I were Jesus, like, that's a scary thought. But if I were Jesus, I don't think friend would be the word I would be using right now. Maybe it might be more like loser, jerk, and I'll stop there. But he says, friend. Now, it doesn't mean that the manner in which he says this in the word, that in the original language, it carries us that it's like, uh, I just have deep, fond, emotional love for you right at the moment. I think there's grand disappointment in, in all this is taking place. But the fact that he just says that is an amazing thing. And then Jesus says, do what you came to do. I don't think he was being snide. I don't think he was being snarky with it. I don't think he was saying it in the kind of a way. I think he was just saying it as do what you came to do. Well, that tells you so much of what is going on in Jesus' mind and in his view on what's happening here. It's kind of the thing, hey, uh, if you will, uh, I just settled it in Gethsemane with the Father. I am going to the cross. That is what the Lord has for me. I'm headed to the cross. And, and, and Judas... Do what you need to do. Because frankly, your decision is even as horrific as it is, it doesn't change the fact of who I am in seeking to please the Father. And there is a take home in that for you and me. Well, let's keep reading. We'll, we'll put some of this more together. A friend, do what you came to do. And, and then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. By the way, it's not like they came up to him. I mean, they've got swords and clubs in their hands, and even this wording that's used here doesn't give the sense of it's like, uh, would you just grab my hand and, and we'll walk you along? It's like they seized him. They grab him. They take him like a cop would throw someone out of a car and, you know, put, put it down as they're kind of wrestling it. You know, they're, they're like going after Jesus. Uh, verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, other gospels tell us Peter, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
bless his heart, man. I mean, I got to say, just a little bit ago, he said, I will never abandon you. And, and I have to say, he's kind of true to his word right now. I mean, what about the other 10? Now, which is so common for us, we oftentimes go about God's plans with human means. And he's a fisherman, not a swordsman. And yet he's going at it, man. And why does he cut his ear off? I actually don't think he was aiming for his ear. Uh, you got to remember it's dark. And he's probably just swinging. <laughs> so he pierced his ear. And then Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father right now, I'm putting that in, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you not think that right at this moment with what's happening, that I can just even with a look, with a word, and a whole legions of angels can come down and just crush this whole situation? Again, it's telling us how the Lord is processing this. But look at the next verse, verse 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Listen, what is happening? He just had this conversation with the Father and this divine conversation, settling it out, driving the stake in the ground of wills. Not my will, your will. I'm headed to the cross. That is my cup. I'm going to take the wrath of the Father for all of sin. I'm going to take that. And he's headed, and before he's even out of uh, Gethsemane, we have this moment where he's like, listen, um, Peter, this is what the scriptures have said, and if you will, from the moment before, this is the Father's will for me. And whatever happens around me, it's clutter, it's noise, it's distraction. I'm headed. Know this, the Lord went to the cross, he did not get stuck on it. It was not a situation where he got caught up in it. He went to the cross willingly, to sacrifice his life for you and me. That's what scriptures called him to do. That's what the Father called him to be. And again, there's truth in it for us. People driven by the scriptures. Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, here again, he's saying it to the crowds, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Think of all the bad decisions going on here. Bad decisions by the chief priest, bad decisions by the Sanhedrin, bad decisions by Judas, bad decisions by Peter, bad decisions by the, uh, 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 the 11 then when they, when they bailed on Jesus. And yet in all of their bad decisions, Jesus is never the victim. Jesus is never the victim. And this is one of the hardest truths for us. We live in a world, we have mindsets that we are always the victim. 
man, it's sad what's happened. It's bad what's happened. It's unfair what's taking place. By the way, the whole thing that we're about to read through as we finish out, the whole thing was a, was a concoction of illegal activity, even according to their rules. And yet in it, the purpose and the plan of the Father was the divine purpose that Jesus' eyes were on. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. By the way, know this, Joseph had no idea that any of that kind of good was going to come out of it when he was going through it. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 17. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. The Lord understands where everything is going. You and I don't. And in it, we struggle. It's hard, isn't it? It's super hard. It's heavy. Oftentimes, it's so hurtful and confusing. And yet, we have here a our Savior, setting the example for us that when people in your life who make decisions that affect your life, you need to determine how you're going to proceed with your life. Let's keep reading verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Then Chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Again, I asked the question, how do ministry leaders like that in that day get to that point? I don't know, but they were. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Yes, he said that kind of in that way, but it depends on how you uh, are taking that. Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Boy, by the way, when people say bad things about you, wrong things about you, don't you just boil up in your soul? I mean, it is not, is it not frustrating and hurtful? And it's like, but, but, man, we just want to go at it. And especially nowadays in our digital world, it is just Twitter and Facebook and some of this sometimes has just become a means for everybody just to let their sin fly. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that men testify against you? 
But Jesus remains silent. Love that. By the way, Jesus is going to talk here in just a moment. So the reply is not, the, the lesson is not always remain silent. That, that's not the point of it. In this moment, with these questions, Jesus remains silent. Why would he remain silent? Because the decision's already made. He's already headed to the cross. It doesn't matter what they do, what they say. So the high priest, he knows it's not working out too well for him. Just cuts to the chase. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. If I had more time, I'd work this out, but it's really an important thing. Just to, if I can just note for a second here, it's an important thing. Oftentimes, a lot of people think that Jesus just kind of got a little too high on himself, a little too caught up in himself, and took himself to the Messiah. But here's what's happening. The chief priest is asking the question of Jesus. He's asking the question, are you the Messiah? Are you the living one of God? And he has an Old Testament understanding of who that is. And so the chief priest is asking the question. And so Jesus said to him, you have said so. Which is really interesting. Is not really a yes and is not really a no. But you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. By the way, that sentence right there, that in itself in their day was a blasphemy statement. No human would be sitting at the right hand of the Father. None. Because you're claiming div divinity. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus said. So verse 65, then the chief priest tore his robes, said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. They had already wanted it anyway. And they spit in his face and struck him, by the way, which was illegal to do in that kind of setting. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, weren't you? And he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went out of the entrance, another girl, servant girl uh, saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. It's getting a little further deeper in the lie each time. Verse 73, after a little while, by the way, movies usually show it. Now, I love the movies and what they do and they help us to see things. But it wasn't like he made a comment and then two minutes later made another, made another. This is probably questions that are taking place over an hour of period of time. By the way, that means that Peter had a moment to be able to rethink where he's at. So after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on him and himself and to swear, I do not know the man, referring to Jesus. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. All the things that are taking place around Christ, all these decisions by people, some who are his enemies, some who are his, his partners in ministry. Some are ones that he poured his life into, some are the ones that he poured his life into, and yet now, what, what's happened to them? They've gone off the rails. I can't explain why people do what they do, but they do. And may we be careful in this, 
that we don't become the victim. Because, loved one, the Lord has plans and purposes that you and I may not even want for ourselves, but he has ordained to be. Let me finish with three passages. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What is all that saying? Life has fallen apart. The stock market has crashed. Everything is crushed, and I have nothing. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Oh, easy to say, hard to live, amen? But that's the call. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who have been called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We love to quote Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. And we like to define the good. But verse 29 defines the good. All things are good because in the end, God is using them that we would be conformed to look more like the image of Christ. And that includes hard things and heavy things and hurtful things and things I would never wish upon me or anyone. And I know that's just a mind blow in it all, but, but, but God is at work in a sin-cursed, broken world. And one last verse, Hebrews 12, one through three, I referenced this last week, we'll finish with it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those witnesses from chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so e easily or which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to this, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you and I and we might not grow weary and faint-hearted. People in your life will make decisions that affect your life and you are going to need to determine and we are going to need to determine how we proceed in life. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement, the hope of it, the help of it. God, thank you that, um, I thank you that you get it even though we don't. Because Lord, I, I can't explain why bad things happen the way they do. But I and we can trust in you that you, don't, you do know why. During this time of redemptive history, living in a broken world with broken people, sin-cursed, Job things are going to take place. King Saul's situations are going to happen. The disciples bailing. At a certain level, we all understand some of that. The disappointment of when people fail and fall 
and hurt us around us. Oh God, we need your help. Lord Jesus, you came and you set the perfect example. May we be men and women who are girded in Scripture, who cling to it, who hold to it, who fasten ourselves to it, who Velcro ourselves to it. That your word would be what drives how we respond. And I pray for those in this room right now who are going through some heavy times, some hard times, as a result of people's decisions made around us. May you give them hope and help. Might you show yourself loving and wonderful to them, that might they look to you and run to you and hold to you in such a way that even though they don't get it, they know you do. We need your help. In your name we pray, amen.